Amen. As you remain standing for the reading of the Word, we're going to take a, a bit of a break, an interlude from our Sermon on the Mount as before we begin into chapter 7. And I'm going to go back to a passage of Scripture that I think we need some uh, informed instruction on and a reminder of, and that will be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is not my intention at all to address this passage to make anyone uncomfortable or to put them at unease, but it would be something that I would hope that God would open all of our ears, including those of us who need a reminder of these things, uh, even our children, some of whom have never heard it. And this is quite a foreign teaching from uh, in the context of the evangelical church, or I would say any church today, uh, but it is only so since about the 1950s, for this has been a historically held position and teaching since the very inception of the church 2,000 years ago. So now if you would turn your attention with me to the Word of God, it is His Word, and now we will look to Him for the grace to help us to understand it. Beginning at verse 1, now hear God's Word. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is a shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from the woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of the woman, for woman independent of the man in the Lord. For as the woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has a long hair... It is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that the Spirit of God would give us a a humble and teachable spirit and discernment into the spiritual things of the Word, which must be spiritually discerned. And so we ask that you would teach us of the glory of Christ, who then reveals to us the glory of the Father. And in this way, in this pattern that you have given to us, we pray that we would be faithful. As the word is taught and preached this morning, send it forth to bring the fruit that would glorify and please you in all of our hearts and into the life of this congregation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It has been a little while since we have covered this particular topic. It's not very often that I do. And we want to understand what the Bible says about it. So I thought we would circle back around. And it's 
needful for us to cover things like this from time to time so that as our children are growing up, they're hearing and understanding as well. Because being a Christian includes a life of pleasing God and how He wants us to live our lives here. And when we make disciples, we are to teach them to observe whatsoever things that Jesus our Lord has commanded us to observe. And this is one of those things that we are to teach disciples to observe what our Lord has here instructed. And so we come back to things like this every once in a while, especially since this is not a common teaching of the church in the day and the age in which we live. This is a teaching on why women ought to have their heads covered in the place of corporate worship, and equally so why men should not. The teaching of head covering is actually more detailed, more clear, and more explicative than the teaching on baptism. Yet there seems to be such an accommodating spirit to justify not having to apply this instruction today. This is an important passage of Scripture revealing an important aspect in glorifying God in public worship. This is not my message. This is God's Word. And the Scripture here is plain and it's simple that a woman ought to have her head covered while in the sphere of corporate worship and equally so that a man should not. Now, even as an introductory comment, I will say that there are ten different positions on this particular passage of Scripture. Those ten positions can be found under three main headings. The first main heading, of which have three different representing positions, would be that the covering that is spoken of here is the woman's hair itself. And under that particular main heading, there are three variations, which I won't go into here. The second main position, of which there are six different variations, is that the thing that Paul is speaking about here is something in addition to the woman's hair that is here being spoken of, primarily so in the place of public worship. And then the third position, which is probably the most common position that you hear today, but you have not heard prior to about the 1940s, maybe 30s, and that you will not see exhibited in many of the, or any of the old commentaries that I can find, is that this is not relevant today because it was something cultural back then. That's the third position. It's the cultural relevance um, aspect. This view teaches that the female prostitutes... And the loose women wore their hair either shaved or cut very short, which violated a natural distinction between the man and the woman. And therefore, since loose women today are not known by that particular distinguishing fashion, then this application of head covering is not applicable. And that would be the reasoning for it. Now, to handle this passage, I want to address this passage in five points. And you'll come to find out what position that I take in this, and perhaps maybe you're in one of those other camps. But let's open our minds and hearts that God himself would reveal to us what he desires for us to learn. The five points, and I'll go ahead and give you the five points, and I'm going to spend a little more time on some than the other, but the first one, I want us to look at briefly the very context of the passage, because I think that's revealing. 
The second thing that we're going to look at is the theology in the passage in which Paul begins. The third thing, he's going to then show us the application of that theology of the passage in the sphere of corporate worship. And then he's going to give us an explanation. And in that explanation, he's going to give us four reasons why we should do this. And then the last of all, the final word that he gives in verse 16, he's going to sum it up and conclude. So let's begin, first of all, with the context in which we find this particular passage. Context is very important. In fact, anytime you're interpreting Scripture, you must always interpret it in light of the context in which it sits. The first thing about this passage is we know that the book of Corinthians itself is written to a church that Paul himself founded and that were not very spiritual. They were considered a a child and a toddler in terms of their spiritual maturity because they were rented with divisions and schisms and heresies and they were dividing over just about everything. In fact, of all of Paul's epistles... The one to the Corinthian church is the one that probably addresses the majority or more problems than any other epistle that he wrote to any individual church. He begins in the very early chapters regarding their division and their schisms that are dividing the church. And yet that's going to be a theme throughout the entire uh, epistle of even how they are acting that continues to cause those kinds of divisions. There's a spirit about these people that are somewhat cantankerous, a bit rebellious, and does not like to submit very easily one to another and certainly to the things that Paul was doing. This is the church that even though Paul planted this church and it was somewhat his child, this was the church above all church that challenged him the most. And so his entire second epistle to this church, 2 Corinthians, um, is primarily an epistle defending his authority and apostolic authority over them for their good and for the sake of their souls in the gospel. So this is not an easy church to pastor. In chapter 5, they were leaving uh, a situation of church discipline uh, quite unignored. In chapter 6, he's addressing litigation among the church members going to court. And at the end of that chapter, fornication among uh, even some of the church members. In chapter 7, he's addressing problems with family and marriage. In chapter 8 through 10, he's addressing issues over Christian liberty. And then he comes to chapter 11 through 14. And in that section, primarily, he's addressing problems that happen within the realm of corporate worship. He begins in this with chapter 11 in the first half addressing uh, this problem that it seems as though the church of Corinth was somewhat unusual in the context of the empire and the other churches that they were above all the other churches characterized by not having their heads covered. And so Paul writes to them specifically on this issue. In the second half of this chapter, he's writing to them about their abuse of the Lord's Supper because they're not coming together as one body and one bride, but they are divisive among themselves, and they're coming around communion while quite in disunion with themselves and with their Lord. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's addressing the abuses that happen while they're gathered together on the abuses of spiritual gifts. 
By the way, chapter 12 and 14 are not a how to exercise your spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 and 14 specifically is how not to. It's, inst- it's corrective, not instructive. They were a blessed group of churches that were blessed with an abundance of spiritual gifts, but they were abusing those gifts, particularly when they came together to meet as a church. And he's addressing the problems here in the realm of corporate worship from chapter 11 to chapter 14 particularly. That context is important because it helps us to understand his teaching here is in the realm of corporate worship and not just in everyday life. Because if we see that, we're going to miss an important factor in supporting argument in what he's saying. So let's begin in this passage where he begins the theology of the passage beginning at verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Herein, he gives us the theological basis for what he is then going to make application of. The theological basis for the practice of women wearing their heads covered in the corporate worship and men not comes right down to this theological principle of headship that glorifies God. Headship that glorifies God. The headship is a divinely established order of authority or of subordinate uh, leadership. And that is something that God has put in the fabric of our being from the very get-go. It's like a refractory telescope that has different lenses so that as you place one lens and then you refract the light and then you have a, a convex lens and a concave lens, and all of this down to the eyepiece, you have this series of lenses that as when it's all put together and everything's brought into focus, takes something very far away and magnifies it into your eye. And that's exactly how this headship principle works when it is applied biblically. The woman in all of her splendor and beauty and femininity is living in a divine role that God has given to her, a glorious role to be the aid and the helper and a perfect companion to man while she's living under his authority. The man in all of his masculinity and leadership and authority is living as the head of the woman and his family in this respect. And Christ in all of his perfection as his role of the mediator between God and man, now as the son of God, is the head of man. And then all of a sudden we have this expounding right up into the glory of the heavenly father. And so Christ reflects upon the Father. And man reflects upon Christ. And woman reflects upon man. So you have this telescope, if you will, and each in his or her role is functioning together collectively to bring God glory and magnify Him to this fallen world and even unto the angels who are watching. So there's a theological basis for what he is here describing and showing what needs to be put in application. Now, headship identifies a function and a role 
It's not the issue of who is more important or who is equal. It's not an ontological argument. It is an economical argument. See, God is the head of Christ in this economical sense, not in the ontological sense, for Christ is fully God. He is co-equal, consubstantial, co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit. This is not an argument over who's more important or who is equal. No, but in the mediatorial role that Christ Himself played, He put Himself in the subordinate position under the Father to carry out the redemption of mankind. And that's why He says, I did not come to do My will, but My Father's will, whom I glorify. So likewise, the man and the woman are equal in God's eyes. They are of equal importance. That is not the argument here. But likewise, the woman is to man as man is to Christ. There is an economical living out of their roles that God had designed them for. Now, the Bible uses the term head in this particular passage in two ways. And he's doing it very deliberately to begin to reveal to us the truth. Here in verse 3, the theological basis is he takes the term head head, but he's using it metaphorically in terms of headship. So after the theological basis of the passage, he now begins the application in verse 4 and 5. Every man in praying and prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And here's the application. You've got a theological basis of headship. But now, in the realm of corporate worship, that is actually given some tangible, physical, concrete application. And the application is as much for the man as it is for the woman. So here in verse 4, we have the application for the man. Now notice the realm of corporate worship here given or implied in the phrase, praying and prophesying. While you can pray in in privacy, you do not prophesy in private. Prophesying is a spiritual gift that was intended for the time of corporate worship and the time in which, even in the next several chapters, Paul is addressing in that particular realm. We are clearly in the realm when God's people gather around in corporate worship around the table. The term here, covered, is a Greek word that the etymology in of itself, which is katakephale, means down from the head. That's literally the literal word, covered, down the head. In the book of Esther, that particular term is used of Haman. As Haman was mourning for the shame for having to publicly honor Mordecai, the man whom he detested, the scripture says that he went to his house mourning, having his head katakaphale, covered. The term indicates that Haman had something external on his head to demonstrate the shame. It simply wasn't his hair. He didn't, didn't, didn't simply go and cut his hair 
to show that. In fact, in classical Greek, the very term is used as a garment that one would put on their head. So the passage is not dealing with hair at all at this point. It is speaking about something external that is put on the head or to be taken off the head in the particular realm of corporate worship. Now the application for the man is he should not have his head covered here. If he does, he dishonors his head. Now let me see if you have this. If a man covers his head in the realm of public worship, he dishonors his head. What, do you mean, what does he mean by head? Who is his head? Christ, okay? So you've got, you got the application of the literal now expressed in terms of the metaphorical. You've got the application expressing the theology, okay? He does the same thing in verse 5 with the application of the woman, And he starts that in verse 5, but. But is a by way of contrast. He now instructs the women. There is something that is going to be different here, and clearly so, and intentionally so. God says that women minister before the Lord publicly, that their heads should be covered. And by the way, all of you women here who are participating in worship are worshiping publicly. Worship is not a spectator sport. We expect to hear your voices singing, and we expect your participation, see? And that's a great privilege for all of us to come here to do. Now, he's going to express, as he has expressed the theology and now the specific application, he's going to then begin to give us reasons in verses 5b through 15. And he's going to give us four reasons. So let's look at the first reason first. In verses 5b and 6, he's going to give us this reason. Four. He's going to explain it now. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now, it explains why this is. And he explains this first reason for a reason of shame. That is the main reason here. It is a reason of shame. For that is one and the same as if her hair were shaved. See, an uncovered woman in public worship is one and the same as if her hair were shaved. An uncovered woman is ashamed to her head. And that would be her father or her husband and ultimately to Christ himself. In the same degree as a shaven woman is ashamed to her own physical head. Gordon Fee comments that this shame seems to be related to her becoming like a man, thus blurring those male and female distinctions. And we see a lot of that today. And why this passage is not only applicable to us here in this corporate realm, but is also applicable to us in all of nature because the world does not like this truth. Beginning at verse 6, For if a woman is not covered, let her be shorn. Paul continues to build on his argument here on one of shame. If a woman does not cover her head, let her be shorn. That word, shorn, is... The same word used of a sheep being 
sheared. It's a very close cut. You see, the two are alike. If a woman is not covered in the realm of corporate worship, then it's like her being shorn, shaved closely, which is a dis- both of them are disgraceful. That's what Paul's saying here. If a woman is not covered, let her be shorn. Both are an act of disgrace. If she's going to dishonor her head in the one sense, then let, so let her shave her head so that her own head will be dishonored. That's how Paul is arguing. But, verse 6b, but if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now, it is implied here that, indeed, it would be shameful for a woman to go get a buzz cut. For a woman to look like a man with her hair. And the reason is because down in verse 15, we see that the woman's hair is her glory. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. So then the honorable thing for everyone is to let her be covered. It's honorable to her. It's honorable to her head. It's honorable to Christ, which ultimately honors the Father. And so we don't have anything that's broken down in this refractory telescope. All the lenses bring into focus the glory of our great God. But then he's going to give us a second reason in verses 7 through 9. And the second reason is because creation itself demands it. The first reason is by reason of shame. The second reason is because it's in something that creation has revealed. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now here what we have is an argument back to creation, back to Genesis chapter 2. We have an argument based upon God's creative design and God's creative order that reflects and refracts His glory so that He might be seen all the more clearly, particularly in the realm where he is present. The entire argument for head coverings is based on a creation principle. Nowhere in the text can this be seen as cultural. Nowhere in this text is this anything that's revealed that it's first century cultural relevant only to Corinth. Because the argument is transcendent based upon creation principles. Just like marriage is a creation principle. Marriage is not something that is merely culturally relevant, that no longer is relevant today. No matter what the world may tell you, that is not true, and you know that. And on the same token, so is this principle based in those creational principles. And in fact, the church has always understood this for 2,000 years. The church has practiced this for 2,000 years, all the way up to about 1950. I challenge you to go find any artwork of any corporate worship that is going on in the church where the lady's head are uncovered. Prior to about 1950.
He may find one, but I dare say it's going to be a needle in a haystack. This is not a cultural issue. This is not a historic issue. This is a creational, intentional, theological issue. And the reflecting and the refracting of God's glory light through His headship and authority, just as Christ was under the authority of His Father and came to glorify Him, so we living under that realm come to glorify Him. And so the man has his part in his role, and the woman has her part in her role, and together we are made in the likeness of Jesus Christ, and together we are being restored in that image, in the likeness of Jesus Christ, in His redemptive work of the gospel. So the reflection of glory of one person upon another is in the existence of bringing honor and praise to the other. That is why it is quintessential for wives and children to learn how to practice a respect and honor for their husbands and fathers. Do you know the Scripture says that husbands are to love their wives, but it does not in the same way say that wives are to love their husbands. It says that wives are to respect their husbands. Husbands ought to love their wives. Now, there's something that's very true that all husbands ought to respect their wives, and there's something very true that all wives ought to love their husbands, but the greatest need that each of us have are a little different because of the way God has created in us a design and implemented into us the economic roles that we each play that expresses the triune God. Verses 8 and 9, he further explains this structure and principle of this reflective glory when he says, For man is not from the woman, but woman from the man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. In verse 8, he explains literally here the creative order. In verse 9, he explains the creative purpose. This order and purpose show how a woman reflects upon a man, and the same would be true as the man reflects upon Christ. And the way that a woman reflects upon a man is such a way that the order cannot be reversed. It's built into the very fabric of the way God has created and designed. We can't change that even if we wanted to. What is true in one direction cannot be true and is not true in the other direction. I illustrate it this way. Let's say we have a a church business meeting. And let's say that all of a sudden in that church business meeting that a woman whose husband is sitting next to her gets up very sternly, and says some very strong dogmatic statements that are a bit shocking, and she sits back down while her husband says not a word. Everyone in this room is going to be wondering, I wonder what her husband thinks. If the man, however stood up and made the same argument in the same kind of shocking way and sat back down, we're not prone to think, I wonder what his wife thinks. 
The same is true with children. If children say something very controversial in the presence of their parents in a crowd of people and their parents remain silent about what the child says, it's a natural inclination for us to think, I wonder what mom and dad say about that or what are they thinking? But it does not hold true that if the parents said that and the children remain quiet, that everybody's wondering, I wonder what the children are thinking. It doesn't work that way. This is the way that God has designed a headship and the way that He has designed so when it does operate correctly, it magnifies the glory of God in a Trinitarian fashion through the society of the economy in which He has placed, designed, and the purpose that He has in creation. And we can't change that. It's not my rules, it's not my theology. It's not my practice. It's not my chapter. It's not. But that's the way it is with any authority. A subordinate will always reflect upon his or her authority, but it is not the other way around. A woman under headship always reflects the good or the bad upon her husband or father when she's in the realm of worship. Therefore, there needs to be a visible distinction on her head between her and her husband or father. The third reason is even more elusive. Verse 10, the third reason a woman ought to have her head covered and a man not to have his head covered in public worship is because of the angels. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. See, we're not talking about hair here. The hair is not the symbol. The hair is important. We'll get to that. This is something external. I will confess right now I do not understand all of what this verse means. But I also will say we should not limit our obedience by our understanding. I don't have to understand something to obey it. I do know that the scripture is clear, however, that the angels are watching the church. We read that from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that the, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the angels, the principalities and the powers as they observe the church. And this day, there are angels in our midst that are watching and observing us, and they are learning of the manifold wisdom of God and His redemptive purposes and all this stuff. And I don't confess to even know the inkling of what all that means. But head covering seems to be something a part of that because of the angels. So there is an invisible reason why we should visibly practice this teaching, is what Paul is saying. Now in verse 11 and 12, he's going to give a parenthetical statement, lest the feminists rise up and begin making some theology and calling Paul some kind of of chauvinist completely depreciating that this is the word of God inspired by the word of inspired by God himself and revealed through the spirit this is not Paul's words here unless people take the spin and turn it around Paul's going to qualify what he just said in verses 11 12 this is like a parenthesis 
Nevertheless, neither is man independent of the woman, nor woman independent of the man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes through the woman. All things are from God. There's not a single man here that is here who did not come from his mother. You have been dependent upon a female to bring you into this world. And and so what it's doing is it's showing the balance of the glory of every individual, both male and female. He made them together in the image of God, and they are equal, but they are not similar. Both are important, equally loved. Christ is no less God than the Father, but in the economy of our redemption, He had a different role to play. And so it is with man and woman. So the fourth reason, which I get to now in verses 13 through 15, why a woman must have her head covered in corporate worship and a man must not, is because nature itself teaches us of this testimony. Verse 13, he says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, there's a way that he has asked this question that is already implied the answer. You could probably answer it. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? How is he asking the question so that you already know the answer is, well, no, it's not. See? And he's going to give an argument from nature. Verse 14 and 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Aha. You see, it was the woman's hair all along that was the cover. Well, no, it's not. He's taking the woman's hair as the argument supporting the fact from nature that there is something special here that then needs to be covered when we come together in the realm of corporate worship. He's arguing from nature to support the application in worship. Paul informs us here that even nature itself teaches us that it is a shame for a man to have long hair. Now, this verse does not explicitly teach that man should not have long hair. It assumes that his readers already understand this. In other words, what he is giving us is an axiom. An axiom is a self-evident or universally recognized truth that when he states this, it is like, yes, you should know this. You, doesn't it? Don't, nature teaches you, and you should know this. Verse 15, the scripture here continues to display that contrast between men and women in nature when it says, but if a woman has long hair, ah, that's a glory to her. And this is everyday life. This is how... Women ought to be in everyday life. A man is to have short hair. A woman is to have long hair. The long hair is the glory of the woman. What do you think the glory of the man is? It's the woman. What was woman made from? She wasn't made from the dirt of the ground. 
Men, you're just a bunch of dirt. Woman is much more refined. She was made for man. And that's why she fulfills him. And he, her. As Matthew Henry says, she's a better cut. More refined. In fact, when you think about the nature and the design of creation, woman was the very last thing made. And without her, it was the only time God looked upon creation and says, it is not good. Don't tell me that Christianity depreciates the role of women. and the, and the It actually exalts it more than any other, other religion in the world, and it exalts it more than the world does with their feminism. But we tend to suppress this truth because we love to worship the creation rather than the Creator. But there's something grand and glorious here. And something by which we begin to see a big vision of God as it becomes into crystallized focus in the realm of corporate worship when we embrace and love what God loves, even if we don't understand it all the way. So the verse 15 puts a contrast between the man and the woman, and the contrast here is even in the length of their hair, and the axiom from nature even teaches you this. We make fun in our household. If there's any guy ever primping and taking a long time with his hair in the bathroom. Not that any of our guys in our household do that. They spend longer on their hair than our ladies do on their hair. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with that. Usually doesn't happen because nature itself is teaching you. Most of you guys, you you know how to fix it. Put a hat on it, off you go. You don't see that much with ladies. And there's a reason. Because her hair is her glory. She takes care of it. She spends a lot of money on that. And let me tell you, men, do not fuss at your wives for spending a lot of money on her glory. You spend a lot of money on your glory. You spend a lot of money on your wife. Okay? And you take care of her and you let her doll herself up all she wants to doll herself up because it's her glory. The only thing you need to worry about is she comes back and is shorter than yours. But nature itself teaches you that shouldn't be. And when you walk down the street and you see ladies like this, your, you, your attention is drawn to that. You say, that should not be. And there is a suppression of truth that is going on today that causes no shame in this. And we read about that in Romans chapter 1. All of these dots eventually connect from worship all the way there. Now the word here in verse 15 where it talks about a woman's hairs or covering, it actually uses an entirely different word because it's in a different context. The word here is veil. The idea that verse 15 is teaching is that a woman's long hair is her glory. And it is this that magnifies a woman and brings a very high opinion of her by onlookers. It's her long hair that's been given to her as a veil in everyday life. 
And if she were to cut her hair very short, she loses her glory. If she fails to cover her head in public worship, her husband loses his glory. And all of that headship is disgraced. Now there's a final word in this in verse 16. Some people come to this and they turn it around exactly opposite what Paul intends. He says, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now a lot of people go all the way through this. And they, they, they come to that verse and says, aha, see, after all of this, Paul is just reversing everything he just said. <laughs> that is nonsensical. That is not what he is saying. He is saying here, if there is a person in the church to whom I am writing that is contentious about what I just taught, just let that person know that we do not teach that, neither do any of the other churches are practicing that characteristically. In other words, all the other churches were practicing this. Corinth needed to get their act together and stop resisting this. Stop rebelling against it. The modern evangelical church needs to stop resisting this and stop rebelling against this. Is it any wonder why our marriages in Christian churches are falling apart? Is it any wonder why the double income, no kids kind of mentality has crept into and governed our families and homes, erasing the distinction between male and female? Is it any wonder why things are difficult and ladies don't know how to submit to their husbands and husbands don't really want to love their wives as Christ loved the church? Is there any wonder why we got marital problems? John Calvin, in writing his commentary on this particular passage of Scripture, says, When the ladies stop covering their heads in corporate worship, the next thing you know, they'll be showing their bellies. Now, that's pretty astounding in the 17th century that someone would say that. And it was so shocking of a statement that it was intended to be, Oh, well, no one would do that. I mean, that's going a long ways. And you look what's happened today in the church. See, all these dots connect from the gospel all the way down to teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you. All of the dots connect. And so as we see the overall teaching that runs through the thread of this passage, it teaches us the principle of headship and the practical distinctions of that headship. And those practical distinctions between a male and a female and femininity and masculinity ought to be embraced and it should be maintained between men and women. In nature, the hair itself shows that distinction. But in corporate worship, the covering should show that distinction. Now, ladies, you ought to have your head covered when you come to corporate worship. Not only do you reflect upon your husbands and your fathers in this, but you ultimately reflect upon Christ himself and the Father through him. If you choose not to cover your head, there's a statement that goes along with that. You make a statement with your actions, even... Ignorantly so, if you've never heard this before, that people who understand this, the angels who are watching, would say, hmm, I wonder what her husband thinks. Because you're reflecting poorly upon him. 
Ladies, I would encourage you to really cover your heads for the angel's sake so that they know, so your husband knows, so that Christ knows, and your heavenly Father knows. I Really cover your heads. If you're ever going to err, err on the side of being conservative. I'm not sure that a small headband will suffice to reveal to the angels that your glory is properly covered. If your husband doesn't care one way or another, I think you still should cover your head for his sake, for Christ's sake, for the Father's sake, and even for your own shame's sake. And while we might not completely understand all the nuances of this passage or the practice of this unique practice, unique only in today's culture, we should not limit our obedience by our lack of understanding. This is a very clear scripture on this practice, and he's given us reasons. He's given us the theology. He couldn't be more specific with it. More clear is this than the doctrine of baptism. And yet we don't hesitate to feel strongly about that. Today, once, or not today, but once a year, there's an annual get-together in Kentucky around a horse track. And it's unusual that when you see those at the Kentucky Derby preparing for their way, for this, it's a big outdoor cocktail party around a very expensive race in which a lot of money will be won and lost. But it's the context of that culture that is created that makes that a unique opportunity. And women who have never worn a head covering in their life will go shopping for a really nice, frilly hat to be a part of that culture. And what we're saying is God has already given us some understanding here to be a part of His culture, to enjoy His party and His festivity and His feast around the table so that we can see more clearly of His glory. So when we do these things, we observe what Christ has taught us and we glorify Him as His faithful disciples. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we have pondered these things that in ages past has not been difficult for us to think about, but in today it is very contrary. And so we ask for a special measure of grace for us to hear with hearts that are receptive, with ears that will hear and eyes that will see. And we pray that your spirit would be impressing upon our minds and our hearts so that we would not repel or recoil against these things but he would begin to work that uncomfortable conviction, but the uncomfortable conviction that brings the peaceable fruits of righteousness so that we would be stirred once again in our souls to do what is right and to be faithful in the little things, even the secondary things, that we would glorify you in all that we do. So, Lord, we are thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for this culture of corporate worship that you've invited us into that is quite transcendent and ethereal and separate from the, the filth of the world. 
And may we embrace this with all the, the greater faithfulness. And we pray these things for the glory of Christ, to the glory of our Father in heaven, in whose name we pray. Amen.